Today's guest is Sam Alavi, the VP of Global Sales at Nolik AI, where he works on making it easier to work on unstructured data at massive scale. Sam's expertise is creating and scaling sales muscles at early stage startups. On top of this, he's a prolific investor with the recent founding of his own VC firm, Danium. In today's episode, we'll dig into how to evaluate early startups, the nuances of sales at AI companies, and the importance of open source communities. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Really excited to dive into your background. You've had so many interesting jumps throughout the years. Thank you. It's great to be with you today, Sheikh. Where I wanted to start, Sam, is looking back at the very early days for you. You studied political science back in college. And I'm wondering, as you look back on that time, were there any particularly influential courses or ideas that you think influenced your career to date? You know, I think what's interesting about that question, I'm I'm glad you asked it, is with political science, there's a lot of looking at the past and figuring out what's the insight into that. Like we can understand from that past, can we take away and learn from it and, you know, socialize it amongst a group and like a class setting, for example. So with political science, I think that was the main skill that I learned was how to look at a lot of different literature or periods of history or different frameworks to analyze history or political events and figure out what were the core drivers, what were the insights. So there's not necessarily like a specific class or tool that I learned, but I do really remember going through just a lot of literature, a lot of reading, and then bringing my analysis to the table. And I think that political science is a common kind of stepping stone into like a legal career, going to law school, which was something that really motivated me to study political science, you know, in the end. I didn't have the confidence to yeah. go through with the whole law school journey. And that's how I've decided to break into tech cells. But it did build that foundation of analyzing a lot of information and then bringing my insights in a concise way, written and verbally to the table. That's awesome. I definitely resonate with that story. I was law school bound as well myself, but decided against it last minute and went into the tech world. So I think you made the right choice as well. Yeah. Yeah. I remember so vividly two stories, like one sitting with the law school coordinator at Stony Brook where I went. She was a very nice woman and she helped me a lot preparing for the LSAT and making sure all my courses were on track. And she said, wow, you're one of the most prepared students I've ever seen for this. So that (laughs) that gave me confidence. But then I remember another story very clearly talking to my older brother, Alan, and him just saying like, look, you're a former athlete. You've done great in school, but I I really think you should just go into tech sales. I have some friends doing it. And if you're competitive and disciplined and driven, you can do really well. And there's not necessarily a need to go into this legal field. Like tech is an emerging field and I think your skill set would be great. And I remember that being like an aha moment because before that I had never really thought about the tech space or frankly known anyone in it. So shout out to my older brother for bringing that (laughs) insight. When you started uh, working in the tech world then, one unique thing about your career has been you've worked across many different styles of sales teams and sizes there. But a good chunk of it, at least recently, has been on very early stage sales teams when you're often the very first salesperson joining the team. What are some of the nuances and unique pieces of being the first person on sales team that might be um, uncommon on a bigger team? Yeah, so when, you know, When I reflect back, like when you're on a bigger team, there's a lot of structure. There's swim lanes, there's inbound SDRs, outbound SDRs. There's a very clear way to qualify a deal in or qualify a deal out. 
marketing has a very clear cadence of activities and KPIs, and there's potentially millions of dollars being spent on marketing budgets and there's product marketing. Basically, there's a lot of structure. And with that comes being a seller in that environment comes training and onboarding and here's how you're going to succeed. And there's a playbook that's been established. And I think early in your career, that's actually very helpful. Like Greenhouse Software, shout out to them. But, you know, that was my first, I'd say, real structured tech job. I did have an internship prior to that. That's not on my LinkedIn. And I'm happy to tell you some stories about that. But (laughs) IoT space, it was just like an internship I did. But, you know, Greenhouse, for example, I believe if we were at the Series C stage when I worked there in New York and they had a month-long onboarding and a lot of training and sales kind of leaders coming in. And it was so good because it was like taking someone out of school, such as myself, and saying, here's all the resources and training you need to be successful at our company. And here's how you go about your day-to-day work. And for me, coming from a background and not knowing how to do any of these things, it was highly valuable. So now contrast that to a startup. When you join a startup, it depends what stage, but for our conversation, I can say, hey, under maybe 10 paying customers, under hundred or $200,000 in annual reoccurring revenue, simply put, you're going to get none of those things I just mentioned. You're not going to have a playbook, you're not have yeah. structure. You're probably not going to have a clear differentiation about what you're selling compared to other alternatives. So I think being that early hire, first hire is about being flexible, being very good at learning on the job and being uncomfortable. You're pretty much going to feel like you might be failing every single day for a very long time. And by the time things are successful, uh, you still might feel that way because you're constantly verging into the unknown and you're constantly trying new things, running experiments and figuring out what can you do with this amazing product? Like, where do you focus? How do you position it? What are the set of activities you should do? And then eventually a team should do. How do you repeat that success? So eventually you can find a sustainable revenue function that you can start to really scale. Going a little earlier in in that journey then, as you identify these companies to work with, given the lack of data and repeatable mechanisms, what are the ways that you're evaluating the startup and working your time to work on and grow your career? Whether it's an investment opportunity or like a revenue leadership position, I look at several factors. So I'll start with on the revenue side because there is differences, but there's also a lot of things that are similar. But on the revenue side and just the way it's shaked out for my career, at least from Samsung to Comet to Nomic now and all the clients have helped in between, is typically these clients and or places I've worked are called category creation markets. And so when I'm looking at a category, the things that I'm thinking about are founders first. Can these founders be the founders that lead the marketplace and create this category and lead it? The second thing I'm looking at is what are the metrics that have already been established today on the revenue side? Like I have joined zero revenue startups, but you know, there's usually pipeline in progress. There's pilots that are running. There's some notion that I can dive into to evaluate the business. So, you know, there's top of funnel like PLG or active users or open source traction. Then there's pilots and how those are going. So I'm looking at the founders, the data that is there, even if it's limited and trying to figure out, okay, Can this be a company that if I come in and apply my limited time and hours, everyone's time is limited, right? If I can apply what I can do 
how much impact can that make? And are the variables in place for this to be a very successful company? So it's about the category, the problems, the product solving, and then evaluating what history is there in the company and how decisions have been made and what the future plans are. So it's sort of putting that all together. And then tactically yeah. on the revenue side, it's really, hey, is this quota that I'm going to take as a revenue leader going to be something I can meet? Will I have the resources? Is the market really ready to purchase and adopt the software in line with like what the revenue yeah. expectations are? So yeah, a lot of facets there, but those are the high level pieces. Using that framework then, could you share a bit more about what Nomic is doing in the world and what your journey to joining that team looked like? Yeah, happy to. So Nomic is an unstructured data platform powered by machine learning. And we are now in a world where LLMs and generative AI are becoming the dominant force in AI, period. And if you take a look under the hood, the modalities that power the majority of LLM models are what we would call anomic unstructured data. And that's text, image, video, audio, or your own embeddings or embeddings in general. And so with Nomic, there's this gap today where historically Tableau and Looker and some other tools did a great job at helping teams or enterprise companies understand their structured data. But the modalities I just mentioned, text, image, audio, etc., there's not a tool out there today until Nomic Atlas arrived that helps the enterprise take all these different unstructured data sources and put them into a revolutionary interface to then understand what is inside these unstructured data sets. And so what Nomic's doing is providing this interface that's the intersection between your unstructured data and understanding that data. And that interface, you can do things like find anomalies, find adversarial data that shouldn't be in the data set. You can actually subsample down your data set. For example, you really only need to train a model on around 30% of a total data set to get proper model performance. And that saves a lot on training costs and the down the road potentially inference costs. So Nomic is that tool to provide an interface to understand these unstructured data points. And when you hear about AI safety and AI transparency, it's kind of a hot button topic. But my question always is like, what are you doing as an enterprise to actually make sure that's happening? And my kind of perspective is Nomic Alice is one of the tools out there that is really driving that to fruition for enterprises. Because mm -hmm. They can for the first time, understand all these different unstructured data sets, clean them up, collaborate with each other, and really get on the same page. And then when it comes to building a model and training a model, that process now becomes much easier because the data you put into the model will determine the performance of that model. What excited you about what Nomic is doing and choosing to join the team? I think first and foremost, Brandon and Andre are incredible founders. They're very driven and visionary, I would say. And so even at Banyan, I don't invest in companies that have zero flaws. Like It's not about having no flaws. It's about having extreme strengths on a vital dimension. And with Brandon and Andre, their backgrounds are in the fields of medical AI. They were at a company called Rad AI backed by Google Ventures. And they were just hammering away at complex medical data sets. And from that experience, they really understood how challenging it is to clean up these image and video data sets in the medical domain because if a couple of those images are mislabeled or the doctor's notes aren't accurately portrayed on the metadata tags in that process, kind of the building process breaks down. And so here they were 
being like really high paid ML engineers at a fast growth medical AI startup. And instead of building models, most of their time was on trying to curate and understand the unstructured data. So kind of why I joined Nomic was because they had this background doing the actual work. And then they figured out how to take the recent advances in generative AI, specifically embedding models, and kind of combine the data curation and data understanding problem for these unstructured modalities and put it all into one easy-to-use interface that can be deployed on a company's private VPC in a really highly secure fashion. And so I really felt that I knew this will be a category that emerges over time. You know, I'm a couple months into it now, and I can say Nomic Atlas isn't going to be something every single enterprise buys right away. Like there's a maturity curve in new categories, and it's no different here. But the companies that do want to truly understand all of their unstructured data points, remove adversarial data, and collaborate highly effectively with subject matter experts and non-experts, Nomic Atlas provides that platform to do that. So it was all these things that led me to say, okay, Nomic Atlas, I think, is going to be a highly successful company, and I'd love to work with the founders and put the sales process together and then scale it. Especially as you could compare the go-to-market notions for AI company like Nomic versus other types of tech that you've worked on in the past. What are some of the differences in the sales process when you're selling AI product versus traditional software? Yep. I love this question. I actually think Jason Limkin does a good job. He has this tweet that he talks about being a new category creation startups great because there's no budget, there's no timeline, there's very rarely authority in your deals because you're dealing with like people who are on the fringe of understanding the future and early adopters. And he talks about needing to educate the market. And I feel very similarly that in the AI kind of tools that I've either consulted with or worked for, those are the challenges that when you go into 2024, most of the times in a new category with these AI tools, because they're so in front of innovation, right? Like they're at the very bleeding edge. You're doing a lot on the sell side around education and evangelism. And what I think it comes down to is trying to get 20 or 30 people, sometimes more, in a large enterprise aligned on what are the actual problems that need to be solved and when do they need to be solved by and how should they be solved. You know, it's only once as a salesperson in a new category, especially AI tooling, it's only once you get an organization to that point, do you really have like a forecastable sales opportunity to talk about in a pipeline call, for example. So I think that's the hardest part, but also the part that I love most because it's so challenging. And, you know, I never show up to work feeling bored. It's always like a tall work. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'd say the difference is. Now, if you're selling a marketing technology or an HR technology or, you know, maybe single sign-on or any of these tools, the company went into the year with a budget. They went into a year, the year with a perspective on their priorities They went into the year with certain individuals in that enterprise responsible for certain things. And so what you're doing there is you're just trying to find opportunities with budget, need, authority, timeline. Whereas in the companies I've worked at the last five or six years, you're creating the budget, need, authority, and timeline through aligning the organization on these pain points. And then, of course, educating them on your solution. One of the things you mentioned is evangelism. And it seems a really important distinction for Nomic Digits fast-growing open-source community. And I'm wondering how you leverage that community in your sales motions, if at all. Yeah, it's funny because I have these conversations a lot with the Nomic founders and other founders 
with Banyan that, you know, we're investing in, or sometimes we don't even invest. We're just helping the founders get to the place where that next round or a certain type of round could be possible. And then Banyan would participate. But the way I see open source is it's a gateway to allowing AI to be built in the open. So just before I get to the Nomic specific question, I think in general, open source for AI specifically is the way to go. And the reason is, is it allows everyone to participate in the benefits and advantages and the innovations happening in AI. So as soon as a company close source their product or a certain component of their product, it makes it very hard for the whole community to benefit from those advancements. Now, I understand companies need to be for profit, and that's very important. And I'm in no way against that. I love capitalism. I'm a proud supporter of it and participant. But I think with open source, there's a lot you can do. And I think Nomics like a great example of that. There's a lot you can do to create products or value that is open source. And then you do have a natural conversion point into paid users. So at Nomics specifically, the first kind of open source product that gained tremendous traction, I believe it was the number one project ever built on Hugging Face Transformers. And in terms of growth, it was the third fastest growing GitHub repo of all time from I think like a zero to three month or zero to six month, something like that timeframe was GPT for all. And very successful things often seem simple when looking in retrospect, but in the moment, they don't necessarily seem simple. They feel complex and risky. So GPT for all, what it did was take all these generative AI models and allowed them to run locally on older devices, like an older Windows computer, for example. And the second thing it did is it allowed the model inputs and outputs to stay local on that kind of computer or hard drive. So this really unlocked a global adoption of generative AI. It allowed people in highly sensitive defense companies, et cetera, banks to just download that package because you can review all the code before you download it. It's all open source and just work with these models and locally. And of course, if you want to pay for a model and run it with an API, you can. That's totally your decision. So that was the first highly successful product and how it correlates to sales is I think it builds trust, it builds brand recognition. And there's other things we're doing with open source with our embedding models specifically, kind of taking down open AI, which I know is a very bold claim, but you know, benchmarks <laughs> are out there, so you don't have to take my word for it. All the data, everything's open source, so you can thoroughly view those results. But I think what happens is data scientists or AI builders start to use these open source products and become aware of the flagship product, which is Nomic Atlas. And then they start to understand what those capabilities are. And then eventually what happens is these individuals become team-wide users and then they raise their hand and say, hey, we'd actually like to formally implement this behind our firewall with formal support so that we can better understand our unstructured data. That's awesome. I'm definitely excited to start around with the tech myself now. I really love that collaboration piece in particular and being able to start a conversation about the data overall. One of the things you mentioned, Sam, is the investor lens you have and your work over at Banyan. Can you share more about what led you to start a VC firm? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a funny story because what had happened was if you go back to 20. 2019, I was the first AE hire, sales hire period at Samsung Next. At the time, the CIO of Samsung wanted to invest and in, in acquire AI-focused startups and create software revenue for Samsung. Very bold vision. So I think they had something like 100 or $200 million set aside just for this department called Samsung Next product. So I was the first salesperson on the ground there. 
they acquired a company called Missing Link AI. And boom, that's how I got my jump into the AI space. And Missing Link was actually, don't quote me on this, but I do believe it was the first experiment tracking platform. So it was before Comet and Weights and Biases, Neptune. I think the open source product MLflow did exist from Databricks, but this was the first independent company to actually try to commercialize that space. So when I started in experiment tracking, there was maybe 10 paying customers max. And now there's literally thousands and billions of valuation that have been created. And that space is maturing every day as we speak. So where I'm getting at is kind of since 2018 slash 2019, I've been interacting with startups and founders and helping improve AI infrastructure in one way or another. And along that journey over all these years, you know, I had kept running into companies where I was like, well, I could probably put a couple of grand, I don't know, some money into this, nothing crazy. But when I look back, I said, if I would have had a group or a fund or I had represented people who cared about investing in this space, I could have brought a lot of quality deal flow to the table for these individuals or just invested the money independently on their behalf. And so that was like where Banyan was formed out of. And yeah, it's been going really well. Two investments I can like announce publicly and there's a couple of more that I'll be able to announce down. Yeah, please. Yeah, one's Orico. It's a GPU aggregator with a very nice Kubernetes engine. They're scaling very rapidly and, you know, abstracting away a lot of the training and inference kind of part of GPU workloads. And they are building like a distributed cloud for GPUs, which I think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then another is Wand AI. And they're the ultimate productivity tool for the enterprise. And so they go a step further than GPT-4. They, their model actually has similar functionality, but it learns a user's individual preference and thought style and their reaction. And it's a productivity buddy that follows you around with your day-to-day work. And they're seeing on average, I think what I remember from talking with the founder a lot about it was around 50% increase in productivity from user of Wanda.ai. So those are two investments this quarter that I'm really excited about. After writing uh, budget checks and starting to work with more investors in your fund over the past Six months, has your perspective on your thesis adjusted at all? It's a great question. I mean, I think that the core thesis I have is products that are built AI natively. Like just this morning, I was hosting a fireside chat with Andre, our CTO at Nomic, and the CEO of Weaviate, actually the second ever vector database ever built. And it's very popular. Weaviate's had a ton of traction. And one of the things we were talking about there is like, hey, our vector database is here to stay. That was like the problem statement. And a lot of the points that ended up being surfaced and very clear to me by the end of the talk was that AI, for the vector database, to use a real example, it was built AI native. Whereas MongoDB and some of these other database companies, they would in theory and do in theory have the ability to store embeddings, but it's not AI native. So what's that mean? Well, what that means is the developer experience suffers and it's not as scalable, it's not as easy to use, and all the features that feel small aren't there. And so it's just a lot harder to use it as an AI developer. So at Banyan, when I invest, I'm looking for companies that from day zero were AI native. And that can apply to a lot of different verticals or different parts of the economy. It doesn't have to just be infrastructure, although that's where I'm highly comfortable and able to, I think, make great investments. But that's like the core thesis. If the product's AI native, what is it trying to accomplish and how big is that opportunity and is this the right founders to bet on? So the thesis hasn't really changed, but I think it continuously gets refined and there's just so many nooks and crannies out there where founders are applying AI. I mean, it's something new like every day. 
Yeah, the very last question I have for you, Sam, is looking back to a career focus then, there are lots of people out there who are really excited about the AI space and but come from non-AI backgrounds or even non-technical ones would want to jump in. For someone wanting to join the Nomic sales team in a couple of months who comes from a non-AI background, what advice would you give to them to be able to stand out and differentiate themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, on the sell side, when we're hiring, and I can't speak for Nomic specifically because we haven't made any hires yet, but I can maybe generalize this. When you're in that seat of VP of sales or CRO, head of sales, and you're trying to build your team, what you're looking for, it depends on the role, but just in a general sense, is you're looking for people that have been at that stage and have been in a similar selling environment that you're going to be placing them in and where they're going to be accountable for results in. And so a great example of this is like if you're really passionate about breaking into AI startups and you've already had your kind of first foray into sales, what you probably shouldn't do is join another like very scaled out late stage company. So what I would recommend for people who want to break into startups and get that direction is be clear about that you haven't done it before. Be clear about that when you're applying, done it before meaning that stage of the environment, mm-hmm. but you're very open and flexible to learning the skills and you know have your pitch ready why you would be the right person to be in this context-specific environment. So it's okay if you haven't done it before, but I think you need that humility to kind of own up to that, to the sales leader and the team there, if there is one that you recognize just how vastly different it will be to go from selling at like a very large IPO, post-IPO company that has Super Bowl ads yeah down to like a small startup that's like just thinking about things on a day-to-day basis in terms of like execution, like there isn't going to be that same environment. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how helpful that is, but I think it's that mindset and owning that narrative that actually could take people pretty far to get that dream job that they're looking for at a really early stage company. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, Sam, thanks for sharing about your journey and what you're working on. Really excited to hear what you do next. And uh, of course, good luck taking down OpenAI. Thank you. I love the Humans of AI podcast. And thank you so much for setting this up today, Shake. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 